welcome to the Epsilon Theory Podcast. Uh, I am Rusty Gwynn and joined as always by Dr. Ben Hud. Hey, Rusty. Hey, Ben. Uh, and uh, in addition to being, uh, I guess, our, our fourth or fifth uh, edition of this uh, this new and improved uh, podcast that we've been working on, uh, it is the, uh, the uh, I don't know wh- which annual edition of the Hunger Games <laughs> it is, but uh, that is the name of the, uh, the, the piece you published this morning. Um, yeah, I'm, I'm not. I'm not sure either. I mean, we're we're only in like, well, actually, I think we're in like the 53rd Hunger Games or something <laughs> That's like that. That's probably about yeah, right. Yeah, is that about right. Yeah, it is. And um, you know, for those of you who haven't uh, read the note on the site yet, first of all, you absolutely should. Um, second of all, the what the note is about and what we're going to be talking about uh, today is, um, I think, goes into this topic of the the gamification of markets, mm-hmm. but it goes a lot deeper than that and talks about how. I think, uh, whereas our focus is on specifically um, Robinhood and Reddit, and are we gamifying markets for uh, for retail investors who don't know any better? Um, I think the the piece very credibly makes the argument, as we have for many years, that uh, these problems go a lot deeper than yeah, yeah, than that. Yeah, it's all a game. It's all a game, and you know, sorry, this is kind of inside baseball stuff, but I always wrestle with how to frame one of these big notes. And, and, and frankly, maybe what I spend almost more time than anything is trying to say, what's the hook? What's the hook for 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 the note? And I, you know, I, I've I've got a whole book where I just kind of write down hooks. You know, it could be a song I hear on the radio or or, or something I see. It's two hundred straight pages of Godfather <laughs> and Sopranos. Actually, I've seen the book before. You've seen the book. This is you're you're not far off. You're not far off, but. I was really having a hard time with this one. And then I, I, I just saw this, I don't know how I saw it, but it was a, a, a picture of, you know, I think right pretty much at the start of the Hunger Games when, you know, one of the quaffed, you know, ornately dressed District One people is holding up the hand, I think her name's Effie, the, 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 the announcer there, but she's holding up the hand of, of, of Katniss who's just, you know, in the, in the plain, whatever district she was from, and just looks so solid and morose, as, as you might think she would be. But it just, it just clicked with me immediately. All right, that's the image. That's the image of, of all of this, quote unquote, democratization of markets and what happened with Reddit and GameStop and Robinhood and all the like last week or the last couple of weeks. It just clicked. Because it's not just that moment of bringing in the, the tribute, right, the, the, the retail investor in this case, but to your point, the whole edifice of the games, man, this is markets. This is the stock market today. What's funny to me and what just clicked for me was mm-hmm. the, the, actually very funny, the, the actress who played Effie in the movie, who I, I think it's Elizabeth Banks. yes. Was I believe Elizabeth Banks was also the actress that was hired by Fidelity to pitch uh, mid-cap stock funds <laughs> this last year. It was the weirdest, and I, I may be wrong in saying it was Fidelity, but it was the weirdest campaign ever because it's not like Elizabeth Banks paying a role. It's just Elizabeth Banks talking to people on the internet about why they should buy mid-cap stock funds. Mid-cap stock funds. <laughs> which I, so I'm not sure what dimension of the gamification of markets that represents, but it was one of the more bizarre things from the last uh, there, the two right? years in market. It's up there, right? Because that that is the point of the note, which is that there was not a Reddit revolution over the last couple of weeks. 
this notion of, oh, it's the little guy sticking it to the man and this is changing Wall Street forever. That's just such BS. That's just, it, it's... When it, and, and early on, it was, you know, people were more more forceful, I think, in, in resisting the idea yeah. that it was BS. Because, you know, as a lot of it was emerging, you know, I, I had published the note that specifically said, and I, I was, you know, at the time, we didn't have all the information on what right. was going on. and But we've, we've, we've seen this play before. We and, sure have. And, you know, my, my description of it was that I strongly suspect we're going to discover that uh, most of this was actually about the usual Wall Street actors doing usual Wall Street usual things. Usual Wall Street things. And, and, and I think in good faith, a lot of the responses we got were, well, I hope you'll circle around with the evidence that you have of that, because I don't think I don't think you can prove that. I don't think there's a lot of evidence. And it was a lot of people, I think, in good faith, again, yeah. responding that with a lot of skepticism that they, did, they didn't want to believe. That right. This was... well, well, you never do, because it is such a powerful story. It's a story of heroism. It's a story of bravery. It's a story of meaning, yeah. right? It gives your activities meaning that you are part of this larger cause. Well, and I just want to take an aside there, because I think there is a powerful idea here that goes well beyond markets that we know that stories are are, are used and you know, to, to manipulate us into action. But the idea yeah. that are stories of heroism and bravery in the face of of power can is is that that kind of story is is now being is, is among it's subverted the, right it's subverted yeah. I, I mean it's one of our most powerful stories of of resistance against concentrated power is now being used as a way right. to promote the interest well of this was the other power. way where, where it, the other respect in which the hunger games that whole yeah. notion it was perfect for this yeah because you know for those of you who aren't that familiar with the movie once the rebellion you know succeeds right they overthrow the evil president snow and the new president president coin comes in she ends up being just as bad or worse than President Snow, right? Yeah. That the, the, the whole narrative, the story of we're going to come together and we're going to overthrow the, the oppressors here is just replaced with another oppressor. So I, I think that was so much of the dynamic that's happened over the last couple of weeks. But Rusty, and this, this, is, this is not a snarky nihilist, you've been played again, you'll always be played and nothing ever changes conversation because I do think there was a revolution over the last week or two. I do think, frankly, a lot changed. Not in that there's some, you know, rebellion against Wall Street, but I think what changed was we all saw what happened. More importantly, we all saw that we all saw what happened. It happened in plain daylight, meaning that the story we've been told about stocks being run by fundamentals, and I want to talk about some, yeah. the, some aspects of that, the, the story we've been told that, oh, you know, here are the rules, they're transparent, they're set in stone, and this is a, it's a level playing field. We all saw how that was not true. The, the, the curtain of that, that, that hid the man, right, the, of, of Wall Street was pulled back. And not only we all saw it happen, but we all saw that we all saw. 
And, and that means that the common knowledge, our common knowledge, what we all think we all think about Wall Street, that changed last week. And that, I, I, I believe, well, it, it's, it's not only that that's uh, an emperor's new clothes moments, which can lead to social change, but I think it's a real chance to make some change. I, I, I really do. So the, the, the point of this podcast in the note is not, oh, ha see, you've been screwed over again. Enjoy, you know, enjoy being poor, surf. It's, it's much more than that. It's that I think we really have an opportunity now with this shift in the common knowledge to maybe do some things about it. That's what I want to talk about. So, so let's dig into where, what, what those two points of common knowledge yeah. that changed were and, and you know, why you think they've changed and, and what that means. Well, I think the dominant story or narrative that we've all been told, and we've been told this all our lives, uh, assuming you've, you've been an investor, an active investor since, call it, you know, 1950, right? If, if you're an active investor in the 30s, well, you haven't been told this all your life, right? But, but anyone whose knowledge or experience with the market happens after World War II, this is the story you've been told from birth. And that story is, you're not really a participant in markets, right? You are watching markets. You're a spectator. You're a spectator of a game that's happening out there in the world. I'll, I'll call it a game of companies. And, and, it, and it really is so much like, particularly over the last 20 years, been described in terms of uh, professional sports teams. That you are, you are watching this game being played. The team, the company and their management, they score points or they lose points, depending on whether they beat their earnings or you know, even the language we use about, uh, about beating or missing. Like, oh, I missed a field goal. I missed my revenue targets for this quarter. But that's the score. And then the score of the game determines whether the bets you placed, these, the, these things that are derivative or dependent on the score of the game, that determines whether your bets pay off or not. And, and that isn't just, when you say that's what we're told, we don't just mean, you know, that's what television is telling us or the, the news media is telling us. I mean, that, that's foundational yes. theory that's applied throughout all forms of professional preparation and education for people in this industry. If you went to an undergraduate business school program, which which I did, this um, is what you're taught. It, it is what we're taught, and and and, and you know, I, I think you and I are both of the opinion. Just you know, before anyone turns this off, thinking that we think this is how the world should be, I think you and I are both of the opinion that it would be a a better, more prosperous, and more productive world, both now and in the future, if we did in fact absolutely focus on that game, and we were in absolutely. fact focusing on security and securities analysis and the the assessment of, of what the yep. value of a thing ought to be based on the cash flows it's going to generate in the future. And that is the underlying theory and basis for all of undergraduate business school education of MBA programs and frankly, all of the professional certifications that serve this industry, whether it's, you know, the, the charter, chartered financial analyst CFA, designation. This is your creed. And, 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 and look, I'm not, I'm not knocking it to your point, Rusty. I mean, I, mean, I still believe I still believe that the companies I should make a bet on right, 
are the companies with a great management team and growing earnings and a fortress balance sheet and all that stuff. And the, the companies I don't want to make a bet on, or if I'm an evil short seller, like I was at one point in time, I want to make a bet against them, are the companies that don't have those things. Yeah. The, the, the crappy companies. I, I, I grew up and I, frankly, I still believe in the creed of quality. And, and, and I, and, and honest to God, I, I, I think if you scratch anyone, pretty much anyone in the country, you'll find that same streak embedded in our minds. Well, and I mean, I think it's a big reason why most of the, the models that have tried to accommodate the extent to which that game didn't appear to be playing out in markets yeah. have what I would say adopted modifications to the existing model as, yes. as their way of thinking about it. And so right. the, the rise of, again, very well supported, but the rise of behavioral finance, not as the primary determinant, but as, as this sort of set of ancillary factors. This ancillary thing, right? Oh, people on. are kind of crazy. <laughs> the people are weird and they make mistakes. So let's let's account right. for that. And right. then now we'll have right. a, a higher R squared and explain more of the that's, that That's so much, maybe 99% of what falls under behavioral economics, right? It's the mistakes that people make, right? And the... The, the, the point you know, I've been trying to make since I started writing Epsilon Theory is it ain't a mistake. It's not error. You know, all that gets tossed into that Epsilon term, right? This, this is the origin of Epsilon Theory, right? That, that, that Epsilon is this little symbol you have in all these econometric formulas, like what's your alpha? What's the beta of your portfolio? There's always this little E for Epsilon at the end, which is E for error, Epsilon for error. It's everything that's outside of your model of what we've been talking about, efficient markets or, you know, whatever the, you know, your Fama French factors or what have you. It's not E for error. There are systematic, predictable, social behavioral aspects of markets and politics, our big social games. That, that we can say something about other than, oh, I want to wave my hands out and say, oh, there's, you know, people make mistakes and they're stupid. It, it's, it's so much more than that. There's so much information embedded in that error term. And that's why we call it epsilon theory. That's the, what happened with GameStop last week, that's epsilon. All of that was epsilon in the, in the, the you know, factor models and efficient markets and all like that. It was all weird error mistake. We're just going to wave our hands at it and say, no, 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 never happened. And what we're not just going to do that. We're then going to consult our, you know, our market history and say, yes, yes. and here are the 10 similar instances in the past <laughs> where, where something like this happened. And, and that's the usual response. And we sort of wave our hands at it and say, you know, voting machine in the short term, weighing machine in the long term. You know, right. we, we say something like that. And it's just not true. It's a voting machine all the way through. And, and the, the analogy I've come up with it to try to explain it is this being a spectator and watching this external game where the story we're told is that our participation in markets is as a spectator where we are making bets. We're doing something derivative to the real thing that's happening. And what successful 
I'll say market participants, we'll call them hedge fund guys, have known from the dawn of time, because this is what Wall Street used to mean, is that's just a story that what makes a market are the bets themselves. And I, and I think that it is such a powerful idea. And I think for, for those who really are attached in, in, in ways that I think you and I both are mm -hmm. to this idea of stock prices, you know, attachment to fundamentals. Yeah. I still think that even for those who have an attachment that says, look, I'm not, I'm not willing to accept voting machine all the way. I think if, if you adopt at least the framework that it is a voting machine all the way, thinking about the idea that at some point, yes, fundamentals do matter, still understanding that that is not a function of the relationship between fundamentals and the price, but a relationship between the fundamentals and the voting machine, right? Yes. That there is a certain point yes. in the future at yes. which the participants who are setting the marginal price care about those things, which is entirely possible. Fun it is still a really useful framework to understand that is a function of that behavioral machine of the epsilon of the voting machine, not a function of the underlying asset. Fundamentals matter when lots of betters believe that fundamentals matter. That's right. It's one <laughs> among many of the games being played. That's, that, that's all it is. Right? It, so the, the example I use in the note is what happened last week would be as if the New York Jets are playing the New England Patriots and New York Jets fans say, you know what? If we just bet enough money on the New York Jets, I, I think that will cause the New York Jets to beat the Patriots. Crazy, right? Insane. But that's exactly what happened last week. That's, ex that's exactly what happened. And we all saw it. Not only we all saw it, keep coming out of this, we all saw that we all saw. Everyone knows now that everyone knows that stock prices move, not, not because something happened with the company or fundamentals, but because lots of people made a bet. That's it. And, and, it, and to be clear, the fact that everyone knows that everyone knows, right, that we're saying that there's common knowledge here, it doesn't mean that this kind of, that this kind of thing hasn't been happening for, for a very long time. And I think that when we say that, that something has changed, we aren't saying that, that this is not something that's happened before, no. right? I, and <laughs> I mean, I'm thinking very, I mean, there's a million examples. I'm thinking very specifically when the, the first votes around Brexit were were you know starting you know it was right. it was a few months out what you started to see was and, and i think it was almost certainly some london-based macro fund they got it in their head they to do exactly what you said the jets fans would be doing this game against the patriots they went on to the the sort of internet-based markets for betting on what the outcomes of the brexit vote would be and they started pushing just tiny little bits of money around probably yeah. tens of thousands yeah, of yeah, pounds yeah, yeah. to bet on certain outcomes for uh, the, the, the Brexit. Yeah. In knowing, the betting markets. Knowing yeah. that in these betting markets, there were people who were looking at or that within markets. FX markets and in rates markets. And they Absolutely knew right. there, there was this opportunity to directly participate in a market that was influencing how people were hedging and managing their risks and establishing alpha positions in, in FX and rates. Yeah, this stuff happens all the time. It, uh, you know, another kind of example I'm trying to think about how to, to describe this is, you know, in poker, there's saying you, you need to play the player as much as you play the cards. Cards being in this context fundamentals, the player being the other players. 
what we saw last week was basically, and you can this happens in poker a lot too, if you really know the other player, if you're really keen on how to play the other player, any two cards, your two seven off suit can win the pot. And that's what happened. That's you, exactly what happened last week. Are you saying you have diamond hands, Ben? <laughs> <laughs> right? Yeah. And and I I think that once you if you're able to kind of click, you know, from one lens to another, right? And say, wait a second. It's it's not like betting on sports teams. The bets themselves are the market. It 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 really changes, frankly. I think how you see everything and and that's why i'm i'm that's the first of the stories i think that where the common knowledge changed so dramatically it's funny for me because i think i think the evolution of everyone who starts thinking about the world in terms of narratives and abstractions they start from a place where they say well the map is the territory and then once they start understanding more they they say the map is not the territory and then once they really understand it they come back to the place and say the map is the territory. I mean, the map is the map. It's the, the map thing. is the map. It's the thing. Wall that, Street that is a thing in and of itself. Yeah. The bets are the game. Wall Street is the game. And, you know, and it's, it's interesting to me. This is exactly why every professional sports league in real world, the third rail, the thing thou shalt not do is bet. Yeah. On the game. That, that you know, performance enhancing drugs, you know, spousal abuse, all these things you'll get second, third, fourth chances if you're really good. Take a bet on the game. Do do anything that 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 uh creates the situation that markets are based on and you're out. Yeah. That's the thing that that a true independent game must have. It must have the common again the common knowledge all of us must know that all of us know that the bets themselves do not influence the outcome of a game. And as a, it, that does not, not only does that not exist in markets, it, it's not there at all. It's not there at all. There is no independent thing happening of which your participation in, in markets makes you a spectator or, or the, the bets you're making are derivative to something else. No, the stock positions you take, the buying and selling, that is the thing. And that's what, you know, the Stevie Cohens and the Gabe Plotkins of the world, they've known this forever. And that's how they've made their fortunes. Exactly like the, I'll call them the robber barons of the, you know, before World War II, the Jay Goulds of the world, the, Cornelius Vanderbilt's of the world, um, Andrew Carnegie's of the world. You know, that's that's how they understood markets. It, it's so funny. You read this stuff about about like in the 20s or the, you know, before then, nobody was talking about, oh, I I, I wonder what the fundamentals are of this company. You know, that everyone knew that everyone knew that Wall Street was a place for, you know, dirty word, speculation, that it was all about stories and corners and, and 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 how you create a narrative and make that narrative happen if you can through your market actions like we saw last week both to go up and go down it's 
and again, it's what, it's what Wall Street has always been. And so in that case, nothing changed. But in this very real sense of, whoa, you mean that story we were told and we believed in is just a, another story? That's, a, that's an important change. It's interesting. So, I mean, as you, as you, you, you talk through some of the old, um, you know, you know, first half of the 20th century examples of, of, you know, people who are cornering the market and using yeah. narrative to do it. So, and we talk about the game that was played this last week, you know, you talked about, you know, Gabe Plotkin, you talked about Stephen Cohen. Well, were, what was, what was their game? Were they the losers in this game? Were they the winners? What, what was, well, they, they, they lost this hand. If we're talking about poker, right? Yeah. If we're talking, they, they, yes, they lost this hand because it was, and this is probably the subject for a whole nother conversation. In my view, it was it was an absurd position that Melvin Capital was in. A, a, absurd to be shorting a stock that you know was so cheap. You know, uh, you know when I think when it started saying it was like a five dollar stock, I think it got down to like three dollars or something like that. And to, to short so much of it, they're basically playing for the bankruptcy, yeah. right? To squeeze that last little dregs out of it. And what is required to do something like that, and again, it's like it's like betting in poker with a, a, a two seven offsuit. You just have to keep pushing more and more money into the pot. Mm -hmm. And that's what they were doing. And it 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 creates a situation where other good players of the game look around and say huh they've only got a two seven off suit there i i and you know i i think we can take that down and, and so my view again that's what happened here is that it was absolutely my view again orchestrated to plant these narratives about what people could accomplish by buying gamestop and mass. I, I like to think of it as like the uh, the uh, the snowball theory of markets, that so much of what happens, I believe, in markets today is people intentionally getting a snowball, putting it at the top of the hill, and rolling it over the hill. They're set up down at the bottom of the hill for the avalanche or the big snowball that comes down. They're not sure which of the snowballs will click you know, which will become a meme, <laughs> right? And and pick up steam and pick up more snow and maybe trigger an avalanche. But starting a snowball down the hill is very cheap and easy to do. Setting up the position at the bottom of the hill, very cheap and easy to do. I think so much of markets today is this, and, and in the past, is this snowball theory that what you try to do is try to start a narrative, a story that, allows you to be set up for the big flow of snow and ice you hope to come your way. Yeah. And a, a couple of sides here, you know, one of which is I I'm still uh, I'm still uncertain as to exactly the way you describe it, whether the, the, the snowball tipping over the hill on, um, on, on GameStop and AMC was initiated by someone else in the industry, other than the, the Gabe Hawkins and Steve Cohen's of the world, mm -hmm. or whether um, that was in fact, um, you know, relatively experienced people within that community, you know, banding together, which frankly had been going on for some amount of time. And then I think very quickly enterprising, both systematic and discretionary managers in the hedge fund space, piling up piling a bunch up. of uh, fresh powder in front of that, yeah. that, that ball of that was going over. And, you know, it's a, 
it's yeah. overdetermined. I think it's both. It's, as, it's probably you, as you both. Say. It, but, but it's one of these things that there are so many people now who, who are good game players of markets who are looking for the snowballs they're picking up speed. Yeah. Right. Even if you're not the one who's to set the snowball off, I, look, this is what you do. Yeah. If you're playing the players, if you're if you're running the fund or you're just running your own money, right? Yeah. You're looking for, huh, I think I see this snowball starting to pick up speed. I can I can get in now and I can do really well there. So another aside on this yeah. front, because as I've had conversations both on on social media and over email and 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 speaking with a couple of other people about this, you know, one of the refrains that that came up a few times was I don't understand why people are being so so critical of of the, the hedge funds in this situation. I mean, at the end of the day, you know, all they're they're really representing is is pension funds and employees. So if you're cheering for these these hedge funds to to kind of get crushed, you're cheering for for these retirements to go down. And first of all, there's about a 15 different reasons why that's just terrible thinking. Hokum. And and <laughs> hokum, as as Ben would folksily put it. But the thing that that maybe the, the the more forceful point that I would make is that if you had in your portfolio, a multi-asset institutional portfolio, by which I mean, this is a a portfolio belonging to an institution that has more than, let's say, $1 billion in assets in it. If you had more than a 50 basis point allocation to a manager that had any capacity within its limited partnership agreement to take on the kind of risk that was taken by Gabe Plotkin in that fund, and you had more than 50 basis points in that, you should be fired. I totally agree. It's the extent to which at this point, any institutional allocator is not laser focused on the leverage, liquidity, and concentration of of the the managers within their portfolio. I'm not saying you can't take those kinds of risks on a a very diversified basis saying, look, we're going to have some managers where there's an attempt to take asymmetric asymmetric risk. And if it goes to zero, it goes to zero. And we're going into that very knowingly with that as the strategy by which we're allocating to some of these managers and we're sizing them appropriately. If your single short position costs you 30% in a month, you're, you, 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 this is what I mean by it was such a ridiculous trade, right? Completely absurd. You, there is no way you should have any money with that manager. No way. And look, I, I knew Gabe back when he was at SAC and, 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 and the like. This is what SAC was, Rusty. I, I, I mean, and I don't know how 0.72 works so much anymore, but, but you know, Gabe and Melvin was kind of just a, a direct refugee from that, that SAC model. And the model was, we're going to make our money by leverage. It's, it, it, it is a business model and, you know, hats off to them. It's built on leverage where you can run basically market neutral, let's say, but we're going to take the invested capital we get and you know, whoever our prime brokers are, they're going to give us eight turns on that. Which right? you, We're going to be 800% invested in the market, but hey, we're kind of, you know, we're long and we're short. So it's, uh, you know, no risk there. Yeah. It's, it's not 15 Shamath, it's you know the and even eight x today is is unlikely to to, to happen. But yes, there were ab- yeah, the, yes. that's we've we've gotten a little bit more responsible. But absolutely, the, I mean, it was within the realm of possibility. And there's certainly some strategies and fixing them and otherwise that are multiples Still, of that. Right? You know, but, on but I, I just remember when I you know I was I was new to the business and I was trying to figure, you know, how do they make those returns? Man, that's that's amazing what you know SAC is posting. 
And, you know, then I, you know, I had a conversation. Oh, oh yeah, they've, 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 they've got, you know, average between 600 and 800% gross invested. I said, oh, wait, so if they make 5% a year, their returns are 30%, 40%? Yeah, yeah, that's basically it. And it's like, huh, okay, all right, now I get it. Now I get it. And, and you're right, we're not back to those levels of leverage. But when you look at not only the hedge fund world, but, but, but any aspects of, of, of modern professional investing, the leverage that's there is stupefying. It, it, it truly stupefying. And this is why you get the government involved. Right. That's why Janet Yellen is having her meeting with SEC and, you know, commodities regulators and all like that. You know, I won't get to the bottom of what happened here. Huh. huh. Let me tell you what they were getting to the bottom of. What they were getting to the bottom of was, hey, are, are, are any of you guys actually going to, you know, blow up now? Like, like, like you did in 08? Are, are you looking to blow up? Because that's the thing we can't have happen. Yeah. Yeah. Joe Schmo, retail investor, oh, he, he, he made... 50 grand or he lost 20 grand who cares that ain't it it's that'll uh, be the don't, don't get me wrong that oh, will be the story, story. Yeah, oh, that'll be the story of, of course it will but it, but it's like hey uh, uh viking how you doing this month you know that you, you, you know that was what was going on last week when and this is the second part of the thing that we all saw that we all saw was that the rules changed well, and it's and and it's it sounds conspiratorial, and we don't mean it to be because it isn't right. It's historical. And, it's and, what it is. And I know we're going off the rails here a little bit, but you know, one of the other things <laughs> that I've, I've seen several. I, I know they're well-meaning. They're they're just wrong. But you know, talking about hey, by the way, you know, in two thousand eight and two thousand nine, it wasn't hedge funds that got rescued; it was banks. And I I read it, oh and 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 you just start to when you think about how to respond and, and there's, it's sort of this paralysis of there are 13 different ways that that's, that's wrong or irrelevant. And, right. and thinking about which one to start with is kind of challenging. Not least that I'm not really sure that there was a bank in 2008 that wasn't a hedge fund. Yeah. yeah that, that's, you know, <laughs> not just a bank, right. Citibank was a hedge fund, right. The problem with hedge fund was it's with Citibank was it's hedge fund holdings. It's SIVs. It's off balance sheet hedge fund holdings yeah right the, the 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 problem with bear stearns was it was a hedge fund that's what it was and i i you're right I, it, it's so hard to respond and i do get worked up about this stuff because again there there are these little snow the snowballs that get rolled down the hill they're not just snowballs of buy company x or buy company y they're snowballs of oh here's what happened in 08. Here's what really happened in 08 or you right. know, how you should think about it. It's all efforts of shaking a finger at you and telling you how to think about these um, events or, or, or news or what's happening today. And they're effective snowballs, right? Because I think what, what they're responding to is a lot of people who, who use hedge funds as, as a scare word, right? as opposed to dealing with the, the technical components of what we're talking about here, which is, excessive leverage at every point in the financial system. Yep. 
And there'll be this sort of attempt to divide and conquer and say, oh, it was actually, it was a settlement issue or it had to do with, you know, the banks this time and not hedge funds or hedge funds this time and not banks. What it always comes back to excessive leverage and who is paying to keep that excessive leverage yep. from boiling over into causing cascading liquidity driven collapses of quote, important financial institutions. And so, you know, that's a, I think that's if, if, if you point the, the, the finger at those who are just blindly saying, well, hedge funds are evil, well, fine, but that's not what this criticism is. This criticism yeah. gets back to leverage. But to your point earlier, right, all of these things were driven by a desire to affect price. But when you talked about the common knowledge that has changed, right, you know, your, your common knowledge that, that you said has changed in this case is that actually all, it isn't so much about how those snowballs are being used to change and to generate wealth through price, but through something else. Through flow. And, and so what we saw last week was how the rules could be changed. And again, we all saw that we all saw it. We all saw that Robinhood, by far the most popular platform, most popular broker for creating, we'll call it retail trades, ordinary people trading on, 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 on Wall Street. We saw them shut down for a day on the stocks, on all the stocks that people cared about. And just before anyone decides to write in with the, well, how, how, do, you, do, you, do you understand settlement processes, Ben? Let's also, before we get to that, let's also mention that TD Ameritrade did the exact same thing. Yep. So the, the, the sort of desire to wave this away as being, guys, you just don't understand you the wonky, understand. you don't understand the back office issues of settlement, guys. Yeah. Anyway, sorry. And, and I walk through it in the note, right? Because that, that is what the, the, the Robin Hood CEO says, and, and I'll take him at his word, right? That he gets a call and says from the clearinghouse who says, hey, hey. You you know this is kind of risky, all this 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 GameStop exposure here you've 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 got because you know you as the the the, the broker, you're on the hook for this if you know there's a the trade is broken your clients can't pay so we need you to post, uh, let's call it three billion dollars, <laughs> now do it now, do it now, and well I don't have three billion dollars so, well okay then you know you gotta you gotta figure something out. Here's an idea, just you know, stop stop allowing people to buy GameStop, to, to stop adding to the problem. And of course, the truth is, and again, this is this is our point. This is what Wall Street is. Clearing houses, the rules change all the time. And to be clear, they don't just change for retail investors. Yes. And correct. and you know, Ben, I know you've you've run a hedge fund in the past. Were the rules ever changed on you? Oh my god. <laughs> I mean, it's, it, it is part of the game. Yeah. And what you realize if you play the game, even just for a little bit, is you ask, well, you know, who is making these rules? Who's making it? You know, whose interest are the rules serving? It, the, again, the example I use in the note is, all right, let's imagine that, that, that football game between the Jets and the Patriots, where amazingly enough, the Jets are winning at halftime. And so before the teams come out in the second half, the referees decide, you know what? We've decided 
the Jets can't have the ball on offense in the second half. That insane, right? But that's exactly what happened. And it happened because the referees are the ones who own the game. You know, who sets the rules? It, it's it's not, you know, some owner's committee like you have at the NFL or something like where they change rules in the offseason. No, no, no. It's the referees. It's the people who are adjudicating this and adjudicating that. They actually make the rules. And that's why they're called market makers. And, and it's so easy to kind of write, write it off to, oh, that's the plumbing. And, you know, it's, you know, you don't understand settlement rules and, you know, the the workings of a clearinghouse. No, 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 I understand. But do you understand what's really driving the rule setting here? It's the players in this game who are in the middle of flow, in the middle of the trades. They, they can't allow the golden goose to be killed. So to your point, you know, why were the rules changed? Well, because of these kind of cascading issues of liquidity for funds, for institutions, for whom that, that would create that kind of cascading counterparty risk, right? What, they changed the rules to give a day for everyone who was the wrong side of that trade to get right. Give you a day so we won't kind of keep you under that sort of pressure. We're going to give you a day. You get right. And then we'll let this, this, this wind out. And that's what happened, man. That's exactly what happened. So let, let me push back a little bit. Okay. So, and, and I understand this, this hypothetical strains credulity a little bit, but I'm going to do it anyway. Sure. It, isn't it just possible that that's the way deals get done? That Robin Hood was under, under pressure because the, the, you know, they were, they were being, they were being pressed to, to post Mm-hmm. you know that you know two or three whatever that number was two or three billion dollars more they they went they had a, a quick call to investors who had already indicated that they'd be interested in any additional mm-hmm. fundraise yeah. said look we're, we're there's no material change in our business and we're willing to give you it's a, a good haircut problem. for yeah. our, you know because you know it's us that's in the liquidity crunch it's a liquidity crunch not a change in the fundamentals of the business so you're getting a discount for a long-term investment come in here help us with this, this quick situation. Um, and that, that happened exactly as, you know, they and other institutions like TD Ameritrade, which could have had no credible reason to have any balance sheet um, requirements, you know, stipulating their reduction and the, the number of trades that they were uh, allowing um, investors to use, you know, the, that all of that happened on one day and that, you know, we saw that the, the short interest was dramatically reduced over mm-hmm. that one day. Mm-hmm. Um, and, and that all that is coincidental. I mean, it, it, to me, it seems possible. Well, I'll, I'll say this. So the, the question I think you would ask of CEO Vlad at, at Robinhood, before you even start talking to Ameritrade and all the other uh, brokers who did the same thing, is, is you're asking this. So uh, CEO Vlad, I'm, I'm, I'm going to say that the, here, are, here are two statements of fact. Both of them may be true. One of them must be true. CEO Vlad, statement number one. Your internal controls are so pathetic and your knowledge of markets is so stunted and rudimentary that you found yourself in a position where you were caught unawares by the capital posting requirements of the, 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 the clearinghouse. 
statement number one. Statement number two, you found yourself getting a call in the middle of the night for unreasonable, insane, never before seen uh, changes in your capital posting requirements by the, by, the, by, by the clearinghouse. Now, like I say, both of those statements may be true. Right? It, you, you may be right, Rusty. It may be that the internal controls and the knowledge of, 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 of markets at, with Robinhood management is so pathetic and stunted and rudimentary that they were in fact caught unawares by all this, that they didn't know that this could happen and had not planned for this. Uh, that could be true. And I think it is also true, or, or I think it's also true that they got the call, we've changed the rules, pony up, we're the referees, we make the rules, don't got the cash, all right, you got to shut it down. So both, like I say, both those things could be true. One of them's got to be true. So, but, but again, the, the, I, I think it's interesting to, to try to figure out what actually happened. I think it's interesting to ask follow-up questions about, it says here that there were new investors in Robinhood from this liquidity injection. Who, who are those new investors? Mm -hmm. And you know, what, what connection, if any, might they have with the, the market makers who really own your business, <laughs> right? But what, what is coming out of this is that we all saw that we all saw it. We all saw the rules get changed. The, the rug got pulled out from underneath so many people in so many, such a public way. But you can't, you can't paper that over. I, they'll try. Like you say, they'll find the, a villain to blame and there'll be some, you know, public whipping of whoever that person is to blame. But I, I actually don't think you can, can, can unring that bell. I think there was a change in what we all saw that we all saw. And what we all saw was, oh, this, this whole business about order flow and who gets that and who they're paying for it. Man, that's front and center now. Yeah, and and it, and it brings that again. The man behind this particular curtain, you know, Ken Griffin and Citadel. It brings them up front and center, and and I think that really does again change the way we all think that we all think about Wall Street. We're seeing that, and it's not just boring plumbing and the like. That's the game. Those are the rules makers. And, and we are talking about common knowledge space here in, in, narr in narrative world. So it, in the end, it doesn't really matter if Citadel or, somewhere S or someone SAC adjacent was a participant in any of the, the discussions around um, you know, the, the, the capital requirements or anything that was going on at Robinhood. We have no reason to believe that that, that is true. But we and we and it doesn't need to be. Nor does it need to be true. I think that Citadel or anything, some affiliated entity or an affiliated entity of of, of Stevie Cohen or one of, uh, right. one of the right, acolytes right. that they were involved in providing the financing for Robinhood to con continue. What we do know is that everyone saw, everyone watching, Citadel make a pretty significant amount of money on both sides of the trade, for better or worse, and. Yeah, some people right and as, as i think you talk about in your notes 6.9 billion dollars last year yeah. before any of this happened right just last year 6.9 billion dollars by you know taking that little bit of money 
in the in the the execution of the trade and not so little when we're talking about options well right? in, in a case like this and, and i think what the what the natural outcome and we're going to see this unfold over the next few weeks of the common knowledge changing is that you are going to see the sort of usual recommendations for well you know what it's time to bring around that kind of French transactions tax idea that oh you know, level leverage the tax on anything to get rid of the, the evils of high frequency trading. And I, 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 we haven't actually talked about this before, Ben. I think high frequency trading absolutely does provide and improve in many cases, not all of it, in, in most cases, um, improvement to the liquidity of markets. It's a little bit of a shame that they're the only ones that are sort of you know, actively transacting at the margin on uh, yeah. on a lot of these securities, but I, I I do not think that that we need to sit here and talk about high frequency trading and market makers as this inherent evil that they're going to be portrayed as. What I will say is that there is no venue for us to have a discussion about how much of the value in in financial markets is extracted by those who are performing a liquidity provision function, and the 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 constructs under which that value extraction is determined are opaque, unknowable, and sort of eminently prone in these sort of common knowledge changing situations to, to I think, a, a, a pretty, pretty fair amount of skepticism on the part of just about everyone who touches financial markets. Look, I'll, I'll, say, I'll say this about HFT, high-frequency trading, and, you know, which is a, a transaction tax. Uh, it is absolutely possible, I think, to game high frequency trading. In exactly the same way, you this is what we're saying. You can gain, the entire market's a game. Everything within Wall Street can be gamed and high frequency trading is no exception. In this case, my belief is this is one of those boogeymen, the convenient villains that you can yeah. pull forward and say, aha, no, no, this ain't it. This ain't it. What, what, but, but I don't know how this is going to all play out in terms of, you know, the attention, the, uh, again, the, the regulatory adjudication of this. I think it's more likely than not to go in a, in a, um, a direction that's not helpful is actually harmful, like a, a, a transaction tax, right? Doesn't address any of this that we're talking about. And, and yet it's so convenient and so easy. It's got a boogeyman there and, and, so you feel that, like you're clamping down on speculation. Right, 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 right. Yeah. It's just, it's just ridiculous. But I, like I say, I'm not, I'm not in that kind of snarky, oh, I should be, you know, they're all just going to make it worse. I, I really do think there is something good and constructive that can come out of this. And I'll, I'll, I'll phrase it this way. What I do not think is possible advisable, desirable, is to democratize Wall Street. I, I, I really don't. I really don't. Wall Street is the game. It's always been a game. And that's not something that is, like I say, advisable or helpful to democratize. What I think is enormously helpful is to reduce Wall Street's impact on our democracy. Yeah. <laughs> right? Right? How do you do that? So what you're talking about here, you take leverage out of the freaking system. Right? That's it. That's it. Because we've we've gotten ourselves in this pickle that was exactly the pickle we had in 08. It's the eternal pickle of too much money sloshing around, 
to people who are going to find ways to make more money for themselves. You lever up, you financialize. That's what this is all about. This is at the heart of the problem. One of the main drivers of that is our zero interest rate policy. When the price is money is so cheap, then absolutely it's going to accumulate in these levered vehicles, which is all of Wall Street today. It's engineered asymmetry. This exists for brokerages. Yep. This exists for, for banks and because they do still warehouse risks of various types. And, and it exists for, for hedge funds and other financial intermediaries. All of them have this problem of needing to engineer asymmetry in order to justify the compensation to their professionals, which is extraordinary and exceeds that of other, any other industry, to justify their present valuations, which, while not extreme, are still higher than they would be if these companies were not permitted to use leverage in the way that they are today, libertarianism for me and authoritarianism for thee. Well, it becomes particularly pernicious when now that the the, the use of leverage and the use of technology and the use of, I'm going to call it financial innovation, is you know, looking for the new host. And that new host is the little guy. It's all of us. It's all citizens. Yeah, the, 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 the people participating in the Hunger Games are, are not going to be... It's, it's, Winners it, here. Yeah, Ken Griffin is, in the, uh, is, is not in the uh, going to be uh, selected tribute. as tribute. No, yeah. no. In fact, that's the thing, you know, that was the other part. District 1 was, the children of District 1 were, you know, not couldn't be tribute it was only you know after they had the revolution oh we're going to stick it to the to the children of district one and frankly that's kind of what's happening now when you talk about transaction we're going to we're going to do these these retributive policies when the problem is the game the problem is the hunger games you don't want to be part of the hunger games right i don't want to open up wall street to the little guy i want to remove wall street's power and control over the little guy yeah Power and control is exercised in so many freaking ways. Well, and and it, and it gets back to your point around the game being, and this this being the common knowledge that the game is about not not price but flow. Right. Because as I I walk through the history of Wall Street's various stories of democratizing investing, mm-hmm. every single one of them was a flow story. It was about generating sales in a product. It was about generating some promote. to management on a SPAC. It was about generating, you know, transaction flow on an ETF of SPACs. Rusty is happening today with SPACs and it's happening today with Bitcoin, right? This was the first podcast we did. Yeah. Was about, hey, guys, right? Oh, you hodlers out there. He means that literally, unfortunately, too often. Yes, (laughs) yes, 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 I do. Uh, And and it is unfortunate, but, but that is the case. What is happening now is the productizing of Bitcoin. What is happening now is that Wall Street is co-opting Bitcoin as another product for flow. And they don't care about the price. They care about the flow. That's where the real money is. It's in the flow where you get, like Citadel Securities did last year, $6.9 billion for zero market risk. That's, <laughs> that's the story. And it's an eternal story. And it's why I don't believe in the democratization of Wall Street. I don't want to open up Wall Street to the little guy. 
I want to reduce Wall Street's power and influence over the little guy. So how how does how do we get from the you know here to here to there right because you we're talking about common knowledge having yep. changed so for everyone for us for everyone who's listening to this podcast what can we do as investors citizens and sovereign individuals to to make Wall Street matter less for, for us right because it look it is the the well not the S and P the Dow Jones is the the me, the measure is the yep. ruler by which we now measure politicians and it's the ruler by which we measure this stock prices is the ruler by which we're going to be measured if we're an executive in a company how do we pull ourselves back from that table um policy and individual action right on the policy side it's pretty simple what we need to push for in every place we can is to reduce the leverage that is in the financial system period full stop there are a million different aspects where that can happen, where leverage can be reduced. Uh, there are a million different places where there's going to be a push to increase leverage. In all cases, that should be resisted. All cases. I'm willing to make that a blanket rule. Uh, it, anything that increases leverage in the system or in this little aspect of the system, nope, nope, not having it, not having it. In fact, we're going to try to do the opposite. We're going to try to set the conditions for which leverage is reduced. I want to delever our financial system. Will that make prices go down? Yeah, it sure will. Yep. Sure will. And I don't care. I don't care. I want to delever the financial system any and every way that's possible. That's on the policy side. On the individual action side, and, and frankly, I think this is over the long term, and it is a long term to have this change. This is this is how effective change comes to pass. Right. And what I mean by that is. As individuals, we put our money where our mouth is. We invest, and maybe this doesn't happen in public markets. Maybe it happens in the, you know, the, 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 the bakery down the street, right? Or you know, in, a, in some sort of private situation, right? Where you are investing to gain a fractional ownership share in real-world companies doing real-world things and generating real-world cash flows that you now own a fractional share of. Public markets? What's the purpose? Capital markets, those two words are important. They mean something. Capital markets, they are a transmission belt for private capital to get to managers of companies who can do something with that capital more productively than we can ourselves. And I take that productively part really seriously, right? Productively is not putting another turn of leverage on, 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 on a company. That's not, that's not, that ain't it. Now, look, I realize that this is the old saying about, you know, the, the poker game in the old West town where the, the dealer's clearly cheating. They ask, you know, why are you playing? Well, it's the only game in town. I realize that public markets, the casino of public markets, is the only game in town for not just some institutional investors, but, but you know, different pools of capital. I, I get that. And they've been running a nice promotion for the last 20 years. They really have. It sure feels like, a, it sure yeah. feels like either the house doesn't win all the time. Yeah. Right, 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 right. Exactly. <laughs> yeah. Here's what you do there. Yeah, sometimes we're going to have to sit down at the casino and we're going to have to play one of these games. But the way I'm going to play that game is I'm going to be armed with both the knowledge of seeing clearly 
how the game's being played, who's behind the games. And I'm going to be able to see that and it's, it's a technology we've been developing, others have as well, to really understand and measure what are the narratives and the stories that are driving, yes, price, but even more importantly, what's driving flow in that game that we have to play with a goal of being like, we got to play, we're going to be as good a player as we can. I don't want to be the sucker at the table. That, that, that's it. And, 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 and it's, these things are always easier as a pack, as a team, rather than as individuals in the wilderness. Look, that's what we try to do at Epsilon Theory, try to provide that focal place, that focal point, that, that place where a pack, a team can come together and talk about this stuff and then act on it. That's the opportunity that I see here. Why I'm, I, I, yeah, a revolution took place last week. It's just not the revolution you thought. It's a revolution in common knowledge. It won't be our only chance to change things. It's a pretty good chance. And I think we ought to take advantage of it. Well, I appreciate that, Ben. Uh, and we appreciate all of you who've uh, tuned in here, even if you're listening to us on Fast Forward. So uh, <laughs> thank you as always. And we look forward to uh, speaking with you on the next Epsilon Theory podcast. And Ben. One, one last thing. Yes. If you get a chance, uh, give us a rating on Apple or spot on iTunes or Spotify. It re actually really helps. And uh, so I'll, I'll put a plug in for you for the podcast that uh, give us a rating. And of course, you can find us on uh, Epsilon Theory, Twitter, website, all those good spots. Thanks, everyone. Thank you. Thank you.